to look, please, continuing. Last Sunday, you will remember that we were studying about the great passage in which our Lord is tempted of Satan in the wilderness. The Bible takes very, very seriously, and the New Testament documents support this uh, with great force. The presence of an evil one in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Actually, the Greek, Greek text there is deliver us from the evil one. That there is a moral will, a personality, a force in this world uh, who is evil and who has many legions under him and who has sought to wreak havoc uh, in opposition to God. This is taught by Scripture and it is evident in our own struggle in life and we see it here in the struggle of our Lord Jesus. He came into the world for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. And so it was uh, of first importance, after the Holy Spirit had come upon him when he was baptized in Jordan, he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness and there confronted by Satan. Satan tried to confront him because I think Satan knew that here is the God-man, that he is all God, he is all man. And he thought, I can defeat him on the man level. And therefore he sought to tempt him by saying, you're hungry now, so if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread and satisfy that hunger. Liberate yourself, use your power. But it didn't work. The ideal man, the God-man, will not succumb to Satan's temptation. If a little midget five feet tall poked me in the eye and I got a black eye, I wouldn't come out here and explain to you how I got my black eye. But if I walked through the Miami airport and bumped into Muhammad Ali and he busted me in the eye, I'd be kind of proud of it, probably. <laughs> this is why Satan seeks to tempt Jesus uh, as the God-man. You're hungry, feed yourself. He tempts him to, to assert himself for his own liberty, uh, to liberate himself. We get this all today. Be the liberated woman. Uh, be the liberated young person. Liberate yourself against your parents. Or be the liberated parents who have no responsibility toward your children. Assert yourself. Uh, there are ways of assertion which are biblical and their ways are not. We are to assert ourselves under the will of God so Jesus does not succumb to that. Uh, he does not succumb to the temptation uh, to compromise to accomplish his mission. Satan knew that his primary purpose was to set up his kingdom, the way in which he was would reign. And so Satan tempts him by saying reign uh, by being the bread man. Reign by uh, compromising with me, worshiping me, and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. This he said in a lie because he could not do this. Then he tells him to win through razzle-dazzle, through jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, and the angels will bear thee up. There he quotes scripture correctly. The, the angels will bear him up, uh, but Jesus will not uh, go outside of the will of God. He will accomplish the Father's will. And so we pick up the reading there at verse 13. When the devil had finished all these temptations, he left him until an opportune time. He was defeated there. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. 
and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Therefore he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Many New Testament scholars believe that the reason that... Uh, Luke has put this passage of Jesus appearing at Nazareth right next to the time in which he is tempted is to show that Satan really continues the form of temptation which he has already brought against him there in the wilderness by bringing it back again when he goes in amongst his own people. Maybe it would be helpful if I set the scene for you so that you can get a little glimpse of what takes place. There are several things to be noticed. First of all, you will remember that back in the Christmas account when we were reading those wonderful accounts of the birth of Jesus, that the angel of Gabriel went to, to Nazareth because there's where Mary and Joseph were. You will remember that also our Lord Jesus, after the flight into Egypt, uh, is brought by his parents back to Nazareth. You will remember that when he is 12 years of, old, of age, he comes from Nazareth up to the temple where he is questioned and returns again to Nazareth. He leaves the village of Nazareth where he had worked as a carpenter, where the people would have known him, where they would have brought, brought their broken tables and chairs to see him work with uh, a hammer and a saw and a plane and a chisel, and they would know him from there. Now he has left that place and after the encounter with John the Baptist, he enters into his ministry. Evidently something has taken place here which Luke does not give us all of the account of. That is, Jesus has been preaching and teaching after that experience in the wilderness with the devil. And multitudes have come to listen 
to him preach. And word of his fame has gotten back to his hometown in Nazareth. And so, of course, they want to hear him preach too. And so Jesus comes back home to his home synagogue. We are told that he went as his custom was to the synagogue. Most of those of us who are in the ministry like to point out to congregations at this time that there must have been many things in the synagogue that Jesus didn't like because it was run by the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm sure that there were times when the preacher went over time. I'm sure that there were times when uh, he wasn't clear in what he said and that there were a lot of other things that were wrong with it. But the implication here is that Jesus availed himself of this means and opportunity of worship. It was God's day, and it was God's book that was presented, and it was a means of grace. I often have young people who come to me with the question, why should I go to church? I can stay home and get that prime time religion. I can watch the great preachers on television, or I can hear them on tape, or I can read books. You come to church, first of all, because Scripture commands you to. In the epistle of, of, to the Hebrews, we are told to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. There is great strength in the assembling of ourselves together. We come together because it is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. It shows to other people that we believe that he rose from the dead and we assemble with his people to worship on the Lord's day. We come together also because we need it. Some time ago, I was reading about a, a person who works in the medical community who in the midst of the week hadn't been to church in a long, long time, said, you know, I feel so down and that the world is so out of sorts that I'm going to have to go to church Sunday. <laughs> I thought that was a great testimony, uh, that I'm going to have to go to church Sunday. Uh, they do. Uh, and it's an encouragement. When your neighbors see that uh, you're not a holy roller who wakes up and rolls over in the bed and goes back to sleep, but one who rolls out of the bed <laughs> and comes to church, uh, they will be impressed by that, and it's a testimony. So Jesus went as his custom was to, to the synagogue and uh, his hometown synagogue, uh, and uh, when he was there, uh, there was the usual reading of the law, and uh, the people would stand for that. And then there, there was a little bit different way of worshiping. Then uh, uh, someone who wished to read might stand up. And in this case, Jesus, who is a visiting rabbi, rabbi simply means teacher, Jesus stood up. And they all must have really been happy when he stood up. And the person who kept the scrolls, the attendant there in the uh, temple, uh, takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and presents it to him. And Jesus unrolls the scroll and he finds the place uh, where it is written. And now remember, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. These people were oppressed. Many of them were unemployed. They were overrun by the ruthless Roman government. And here, their hearts must have been buoyed up he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And how we need that. I remember some old gospel song about Jesus, the carpenter, the mender of broken hearts. 
And that marvelous hymn, which Arlen sung a moment ago, here bring your broken heart, here tell your sorrow. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Uh, to preach the deliverance to the captive. And there are people in various kinds of bondage, not just the bondage of imprisonment or the, imbond or the bondage of poverty or death or the bondage of sickness. There are, there are spiritual bondages too. The recovering of sight to the blind. He did all of these things. He made blind men to see again. And then he makes another miracle. I went to the hospital this week to see Vivian McCaskill, a lovely Christian lady in our church. They found a melanoma tumor behind her eye, her left eye. And it had to be taken out this week. I went into the room the day of the surgery to pray with her. My, what a brave and wonderful person. Studying the scriptures that were there. Uh, facing unafraid the future because of her trust in God and his love for her and his goodness. This to me is a greater miracle than being able to see, is to be able to have the peace of God inside no matter what the circumstances might be. The recovering of the sight to the blind. Do you remember that anthem that used to be sung, the song of the, the blind plowman? set my feet upon, put my hands upon the plow, my feet upon the sod, turn my face in toward the east and praise thee to my God. The God who makes his sun to shine alike on you and me, the God who took away my sight that now my soul may see. To set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book. Now, codex books, these things that are bound together, were not invented until what we call the Dark Ages. Actually, the Dark Ages brought out some pretty good inventions. Uh, they at least quit unrolling scrolls and put them in the books, which made it a lot easier to read. Uh, but uh, he closed the book. Why did he close the book? He closes the book because he is going to draw attention to the fact that he is the fulfiller of the prophecy of the book. He closes the book because you and I, when we read our Bible, are going to have to close it and walk out of the house and go to work. And we're going to have to live out the truth which we understand from God. Someone has said to me, <laughs> Recently, I wish I could read the Bible in the original. This is often said to me. I do too, and I took Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> I often say I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. The little Greek runs a restaurant. The little Hebrew runs a clothing store. But <laughs> the, it's a laudable pr uh, thing to be able to read Greek and Hebrew. But the Bible's original language is the language of human experience. And you can get enough out of a good translation... And the best translation is the one you'll read, uh, to enable you uh, to translate into activity the, the will of God. That's what's important. That's what he wants you to do. And so when we close the book, we are to put into practice uh, what's going to be taught us there. Now then, 
all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, there are people who think that uh, this is sort of a put-down here. Uh, they were really impressed. Beautiful. To enable you uh, to translate into activity the, the will of God. That's what's important. That's what he wants you to do. And so when we close the book, we are to put into practice uh, what's going to be taught us there. Now then, all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now there are people who think that uh, this is sort of a put down here. Uh, they were really impressed. It was beautiful, the speech that he had made this marvelous passage from the 61st chapter of Isaiah and the little quotation from the 58th chapter of Isaiah. And then he knew what they were thinking. He knew that they were thinking that because he was from their hometown, there would be some special privileges granted unto them. And then he really shocks them. He said, you will... Say unto me, surely, physician, heal thyself, whatever we have heard you have done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country, here in your hometown. And then he said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. When we're close to great and famous people, we tend to uh, look, a, a familiarity breeds contempt, and that sometimes is the way it is. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now catch this, these are Israelites he's speaking to. And they're thinking, my, he's wonderful. Listen at the way he speaks. We've heard that he's had those great catches of fish, walked on water, made blind people to see, cleansed lepers, healed all these people. And here he is, back here in our own church, a man of faith and miracles. We're going to be able to see him do all of these things, and he's going to help us out too. And then uh, someone has said that, of course, uh, he would want to make his brothers captains in his new army, and uh, he would have special privileges for those who had special connections with him. That's the way we operate, and that's a system that glues the whole world together, it looks like. Every time a president comes from Texas, his old buddies from Texas get in the White House. I can bear testimony to that. And uh, if they come from Georgia, here come the Georgia crackers. And if they come from Boston, here come the Boston. Uh, special privileges for special connections. And uh, sometimes this has to be that way because you have to be around people you know and are familiar with. But sometimes it can be very unfair, and Jesus is not going to allow himself to be uh, uh, captive to uh, Nazareth. He wants them, them to know that the whole world is Nazareth as far as he's concerned and that there's not going to be any special privileges meted out to his hometown. And so he tells them, I, I tell you of the truth, there were many widows in Israel. There were widows who were good Jews. And do you know what Elias did? Elijah, when the uh, heavens were shut up and the great famine came to the land, Jesus said, I'll tell you what Elijah did. Elijah went to a village of Sidon. Lebanese village, pagan. And he went there and he saved a woman that was a widow. Oh boy, they didn't like that. 
They said, I don't remember that thing in the Bible. What's he talking about? And then he said there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. But none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And they said, this sermon is getting worse every minute. Here he is talking one minute about this widow in his pagan country, and now he talks about this Syrian. And we hate the Syrians. I thought he was going to do something for Nazareth. And so they are up in arms now. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him out to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. With great authority, great presence, great power. They were mad. He went on right through them. Now then, what's the lesson here for us? The lesson is the same that we saw really in the temptation of the devil. Who are you? The devil said, if you're the son of God, turn the stones into bread. If you're going to build your kingdom, tell me how you're going to do it. How will you build your kingdom? How are you going to prove it to us? Where do we fit in? That's why last week I quoted from Dostoevsky's The Brothers Charmatsov. I wanted you to see what happens to religious people. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in 1839, was arrested for what was considered a plot against the Tsar. He was taken and put into a prison camp in Siberia. He always thanked God that he was arrested. They had taken them out and lined up Dostoevsky with the other students who were in that little activist group and sentenced them to death. They had had the Orthodox priest come out and read the funeral service aloud to them. And when the command was being given to execute them, just before the command to fire was given, there came riding into the presence of them an emissary of the Tsar waving a white flag and saying he had commuted their sentences and would send them to Siberia. Dostoevsky never forgot that terrifying experience. And when he went into Siberia, there were two Christian women who gave to him a copy of the New Testament. And in that New Testament was a, was a, a 25-ruble note, which helped him. But better than that, it was open to the parable of the prodigal son. And through reading the gracious words of what Jesus did to seek and to save the lost, Dostoevsky was converted. And here... The biographer who writes the preface to this particular edition of the, of the Brothers Karamazov, um, I don't know if he has any Christian leanings at all, but when he begins to explain Dostoevsky, he says you can't explain him apart from his Christian experience. Listen to what he says. He talks about that passage that I read to you last week from the legend of the Grand Inquisitor, a story that Dostoevsky makes up. Uh, to show how far the church can get away from God and how far its people does. Dostoevsky wrote in his notebook beside that scene, quote, even in Europe there are not and have not been atheistic expressions of such force. 
Consequently, it is not as a boy that I believe in Christ and confess him, but my hosannas have passed through a great furnace of doubt. He came to a knowledge of Christ in a fierce furnace of doubt. That's why he put those atheistic expressions into his imaginary character, the Grand Inquisitor. And the Grand Inquisitor was an old priest, 90 years old, who had a secret in his heart, and the secret was that years ago he had given up on Jesus and had decided that the devil was really right in the temptation. And that if Jesus had only been willing to follow the devil, then that would have been the big thing. And Dostoevsky is almost prophetic in what he writes years ago. Listen. Judge for yourself then, you... This is the Grand Inquisitor. Judge for yourself then, he says to Christ, who has come back. Who was right? You are the one who questioned you. You remember the first question? It was worded differently, but this is its purport. You wanted to come into the world and you came empty-handed with nothing but some vague promise of freedom, which in their simple-mindedness and innate irresponsibility men cannot even conceive, and which they fear and dread. For there has never been anything more difficult for man and for human society to bear than freedom. And now do you see these stones in this parched and barren desert? Turn them into loaves of bread, and men will follow you like cattle, grateful and docile, although constantly fearful, lest you withdraw your hand and they lose your loaves. But you did not want to deprive men of freedom, and you rejected this suggestion. You thought, what sort of freedom would it be if their obedience was bought with bread? You replied that man does not live by bread alone, But do you know that for the sake of that earthly bread, the spirit of the earth will rise up against you, will confront you, and will conquer you? And they will all follow him, shouting, Who is there to match the beast who has brought us fire from heaven? Do you know that more centuries will pass and men of wisdom and learning will proclaim that there is no such thing as crime? that there is no such thing as sin either, that there are only hungry people. Feed us and then ask us for virtue. My, it's almost prophetic. You can almost see communism in an atom bomb because this is about the way it is in the world. Who are you? The devil wants him to do it this way, but... Jesus knows that man will not live by bread alone. He tells us to labor for the bread that does not perish. He will not do things any other way than God's way. He will build his kingdom only as God chose him to build it. And this must mean that those of us who follow him must surrender our wills to his will too. I have to close, and in closing, I want again to point to Solzhenitsyn, on December the 30th, 1979, this appeared in the London uh, Daily Telegraph, was an article written by Malcolm Mugridge in which he was asked to describe what he thought would take place in the decade of the 80s. 
is not a very happy thing to read because of what he sees taking place in the world. And when he begins to describe what happens, he talks about how in the West we have a, a bent toward more and more pleasure. We've seen this in the narcissistic culture, the me generation, wanting everything hedonism, all pleasure for me. We see this in the type of television which governs our lives, the entertainment, which is increasingly more and more uh, what Mugridge describes as pornography and inconsequential lunacy. Yet underneath this frozen surface, seeds will begin to germinate. Through cracks in the concrete space, tiny green shoots will appear. In the darkness, glimmers of light will shine. And where has all of this started happening? In the unlikeliest spot on the place of the earth, the Gulag Archipelago, the prison camps of Russia. It is there where there is no freedom that freedom is being rediscovered. That's what Solzhenitsyn meant when he said that the only free people that he saw when he was in prison were those Baptists who were converted and who knew the freedom of which Jesus Christ spoke. There where there is no hope, that hope alone is born. And then he concludes by quoting Solzhenitsyn. It was only when I lay there on the rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passed not through states nor between classes nor political systems, but right straight through every human heart. And that is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. Solzhenitsyn is, of course, not alone. There are many others. And it is such words as his and such experiences as he describes that makes me say and mean as a final comment on these and any other time. There is only one way. It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's in the Word. Thy will be done. Jesus sought to do Nazareth a great favor by delivering them from their own prejudices, by delivering them from their own selfish interests. And because of that, they tried to kill him. Our only freedom is the freedom that comes in doing the will of God. Bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Lordship, when it is at work in our lives, is always for us and not against us. Because you're a tender and a wise shepherd, you lead us many times through valleys we do not expect. So many times we want to control you. Lord, help us learn that you are the Lord and that you belong to all men, not as their possession, but as their possessor. Lord, help us to fully understand this in our own lives. Lord, we pray for Nazareth. We pray for all men and women who have lived in our own Nazareth. 
who want to possess you and tell you what to do. And Lord, we pray that you will tell us what to do and make us know the difference between your will and ours and to give over our will unto you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.